Let's turn our, and direct our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to the Word of God this morning. The title of our message is The Gospel of the Resurrection. The Gospel of the Resurrection or the Resurrection Gospel. Either way, the Gospel of the Resurrection or the Resurrection Gospel. Or, just to put it most definitively, the good news of the resurrection. The good news of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of God. John Phillips, in his commentary on this passage, writes this. In history, there were two men a couple hundred years ago named Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. Both were atheists had a hostility in their spirits towards Christ and towards Christianity. They could be summarized as skeptics. And they met in London, England to lay plans to demolish Christianity once and for all. No small task. These two men agreed that Christianity rested, in their opinion, on two major premises. First, the resurrection of Christ. And second, the conversion of of Saul of Tarsus, who would later become known as Paul, the author of our epistle here this morning, 1 Corinthians. These men, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, felt like if they could undermine these two hinges, these two things, that they could destroy the Christian faith. So they divided their work. Gilbert West undertook the task to disprove the resurrection, and Lord Littleton agreed to take on the conversion of the Saul of Tarsus, to disprove it as well. They agreed to separate for a period of time for their studies, to assemble their arguments. They would come back together again for mutual encouragement and to compare their progress. What happens next is what Paul Harvey describes in his old radio show, for those of you who are old enough to remember, the rest of the story. It's one of the great conversion stories that has happened numerous times when people begin to undertake examining the facts of the gospel the facts of the resurrection from an analytical, purely cold case perspective. Both of these men were converted. 
while looking for the evidence to support their claims, and both men would write their books, but their books were not an argument against Christianity. The books that they would go on to write were to prove the accuracy of the New Testament narrative. In fact, Gilbert West became the author of a book on the resurrection of Christ, a classic even to this day, and Lord Littleton championed the conversion of, the, of Saul of Tarsus. One thing I want us to note this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that the doctrine of the resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. I think we all know that. But if you're here this morning and you're new to Jesus, you're new to the gospel, I want you to know this morning that the gospel of the resurrection is foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the resurrection is foundational to our life, our salvation, our theology, or the study of God. And we praise the Lord for the good news of the resurrection. One commentator says this, Just as a heart pumps life-giving blood to every member of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. As we consider the doctrine of the resurrection, we need to remember that the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of, of Christian doctrine. It is referenced over 104 times in just the New Testament. The apostle who was chosen to replace Judas had to be one of those who saw the resurrected Christ. In fact, Peter mentions in his sermon at Pentecost, Jesus, whom God has raised up, of whom, notice here, we are all witnesses. Peter was preaching to the consciences of those who had seen the resurrected Christ as he invokes this witnessing aspect within his preaching of the gospel. As we look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the 15th chapter here of 1 Corinthians is maybe one of the most comprehensive passages on the resurrection. Paul addresses it from a number of angles of which we will look at one angle this morning, the angle of authority. The angle of authority, but he uses logic, he uses historical evidence, he uses scriptural authority, and he goes and invokes the, the implications of the doctrine of resurrection within the Christian life. But Paul here is an able pastor to the church at Corinth. And he's coming along to address what was some false teaching regarding not only the resurrection, but the future resurrection that would happen for the believers and their bodies. They believed or were being taught that, yes, Christ rose from the dead, but yet the body, according to Greek thought and culture, was inherently corrupt, inherently evil, and so part of what resurrection life would mean and would be would be to be released from the body, that the spiritual man could be all that it is supposed to be. And yet Paul wants them to know, listen, the resurrection gospel or the good news of the resurrection means that not only are we made new in our spirits, but in the doctrine of glorification, one day we receive a new body as well. How do we know this? Well, we don't have time to unpack all of this. But he goes on later in verses 11 and following to say, because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of his resurrection, we can have confidence in that we will experience a bodily resurrection as well. But false teachers were coming in and undermining the hope that those in the church at Corinth had and that the hope of the bodily resurrection for the believer. 
And so verses 1 through 11 here in our passage, Paul focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. And he comes alongside to give a reminder that the resurrection, every piece of evidence for the future resurrection of those who trust in Jesus is connected to the resurrection, the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In fact, this gospel message, verse 3, notice what Paul says, is of an item of first importance to the church. Verse 3, I deliver to you of what is first importance to remind you, to shepherd you, to confirm you in your faith as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, what a reminder this is for us this morning. In fact, what we focus on matters, doesn't it? Our gaze matters. Our mission matters. We can get distracted on so many things today that are good things, but are not the main things. In fact, you could say it like this. The gospel is the engine that drives every ministry of this church. There is no ministry here at Grace Church that the gospel that is not connected to the good news of Christ. Where the good news of Christ is not empowering. If we're going to feed people, that's our delight and our joy to do so, but it's with the gospel. If we're going to clothe people, that's wonderful, and we want to do it with the gospel. If we're going to help people in getting gas in their cars or discipling them or ministering to them in their broken marriages or in any way that God gives us opportunity, we do so only in the power of the gospel. Why, Legrand? Because only the gospel can change. Only the gospel can change the world. Only the gospel can change a soul. Only the gospel can regenerate a soul, and only the gospel can reconcile man to God. Friends, simply look at the news, and don't do that too long. But every headline you hear, every trending thing on Twitter, every headline on your favorite news source, however you get it, is simply an attempt to answer the depravity or the sin of man. Money cannot solve our problem in America today. More bills, passing more laws and legislation cannot solve our problems in America today. There's only one thing that will save America today, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the old preacher once said, you can put new suit on the man, or you can put a new suit on the man, but only the gospel can put a new man in the suit. Here, as we look in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is strengthening the church, reminding them that the gospel of the resurrection is not a fraud, it's, it's not a fake. It is a very means of our hope for eternity, of being reconciled to God. And as we see in this chapter, Paul will respond in three ways. He gives a response from authority, a response from evidence, and a response from logic. And this morning in verses 1 through 4, 1 through 5, we'll see that Paul makes his argument from authority. And our points are these. Number one, the declaration of the gospel. Number two, the deliverance of the gospel. And number three, the defining of the gospel. First of all, I want you to note, number one, the declaration of the gospel, verse one. Paul writes, he says, Moreover, brethren, in other words, I would remind you, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, proclaimed to you, what I'm doing this morning, heralding to you, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Notice with me those two words, I declare to you the gospel I preached to you. In other words, I'm actively doing what I've done before. That's what Paul is saying. Notice with me first, the preaching. 
What we find here is that saving faith is rooted in the proclamation or the, the preaching of the gospel. Preaching, or the role of preaching, is not popular today, but we're unfazed. We, we don't have a concern in the sense of what people think about the means that God has ordained for the church. Preaching, what I'm doing today is foolishness. Paul's already addressed this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the wise, to the erudite, to the esteemed, to the academic. When, when the church gathers and a man, a simple man, stands up and just heralds the things of God, it's foolishness. It's laughable. But yet Paul says, this is exactly what I'm doing for you, church. I'm shepherding you, and I'm re-preaching in a sense. I'm re-declaring to you what I have preached to you before. I would remind all of us that God has ordained the means of preaching to reach the lost. I'm going to say that again. I want to remind all of us this morning that God has ordained the means, the vehicle of preaching to reach the lost. Romans chapter 10. If you'll turn there with me just briefly. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. God has ordained the means of preaching to reach the lost. And he's also ordained the means of preaching to sanctify those who believe. Preaching is not just for the lost, but believers need to be reminded of this glorious gospel that we believe again and again, day by day, and yet what are days made of? Hours, minutes, moments. We need to remind ourselves what Christ has done for us. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Here, Paul is writing and asking these rhetorical questions. How shall the lost come to faith if they don't hear the message? What is the answer? that someone preach the good news of Christ to them. And yet, how does, listen here, not only how does society respond to this ordained means of preaching, how does the church respond to the ordained means of preaching? Yes, I get it. I, I get the fact that we're gathered here this morning. But friends, how do you view a street preacher who is faithfully preaching the gospel? And I know the answer. You don't know because you don't hear them. You don't hear a voice crying in the wilderness. At least, it's very difficult or random to hear that today. But should you? Let's say this afternoon you walk out of this building and you hear someone preaching the gospel. Do you lump them in with every crazy known to man? Do you think like secular culture and society does? Every time you see a preacher on TV, they're always effeminate. They're always just some type of warped view of what a preacher should be. It's always interesting whenever you see a preacher on a movie or a television show, they're not the preachers I know. <laughs> they're not the preachers I run with. But again, I'm getting off track. Here's the point. It's not only how does the world respond to preaching or preachers, how does the church respond to it? Notice this rhetorical question that Paul asks, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Verse 15, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
Friends, this is faith not only unto salvation, but again and again in our sanctification, we have to battle for our faith. And faith comes by hearing, growing in the grace of God and hearing by the word of God. Unbelievers need to hear the gospel, but friends, believers need to be reminded of the gospel. It's implications, the hope that it imparts. And that is why Paul says, church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, here I declare the gospel to you. It is an item of first importance. And when you study the ministry of Paul, Paul had a number of things that were of first importance. In action, we see that he loved to go to the synagogues, to the public squares, to places where the gospel would be difficult to teach and to proclaim and to share, converse. But yet Paul delighted in it. He loved to be a fool for Christ's sake. Not that he delighted in being foolish, but that he knew the power was in the gospel. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But here, Paul is telling the church, not only do I delight as an item of first importance to take the resurrection gospel to the lost, but I delight in bringing it to you to strengthen you, to edify you, to encourage you in the faith. And that's what he's saying here. The gospel is the perpetual need that we have. In our human hearts, Augustine says, I believe it is, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. Friends, in our fallenness, in this flesh, in our world, there's a perpetual need for something new. But I have to confess to you this morning, I have no new gospel to give to you, but an old gospel. The gospel is all we need. It is an eternal gospel. You can say, well, why is that? If we are constantly longing for something new, I would simply tell you that is a sense that reminds you that you are a fallen creature, that our hearts are made for eternity. The gospel is outside the bounds of time. In fact, we will glory in the gospel for all eternity. The desire for something new speaks of time, chronos, being confined by it. New speaks of needing to be introduced to some new thing that is new, but then it becomes old. But the gospel never wears away. The gospel never becomes new or old. The gospel is simply the gospel. It is something that we not only are introduced into the Christian faith with, but we are sustained by it. In fact, one author says it like this, the gospel is not the door to the house or the entrance to the house or building of Christianity. The gospel is the whole building full of the classrooms that we grow in, lessons that we learn and that we repeat. And this is what Paul says, I preach to you, church. And by extension this morning, Grace Church and visitors here this morning, I proclaim the gospel. I remind you of the good news of Christ this morning. As we look here in our passage, one of the things I think is interesting is Paul describes his preaching. In fact, many people do not get the chance to receive the gospel because they've never actually heard it. They've never heard about the full message of Christ, his person and work, and the fact that they are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. My father has such a testimony. He grew up in a mainline denominational church was a good boy. His mom had him in church every time the doors were open. In fact, he was so present and so willing and a good kid, quote-unquote. He became the president of his youth group. The problem was he'd never heard the gospel. He thought he was good by being born to a good family, by doing certain good things. Yet one day he heard a preacher in a guest kind of a 
a special event scenario, an evangelist stand up and preach the gospel, and that it is our sin. When we lie, we, become, we are a liar. When we take things that don't belong to us, we are a thief. We're revealing that our hearts are idolaters, that we are covetous. We've never only always honored our mother and father. We've, not, not, we've never only honored and loved God as he ought to be reverenced. We're blasphemers when we take his name in vain. He began to realize that his sin caused him to fall short of a thrice holy God. He had to hear the gospel. And when he heard it, his heart was open to it, and he believed it. Notice with me in verse 1, as Paul makes these things known, point number one, again, is the declaration of the gospel. Notice Paul not only proclaims it, but he affirms them in the fact that they participate in it. Notice verse 1, he says, which you also have received. Paul reminds the church and us here this morning, he says that the gospel is a, is a two-way endeavor. It, it is something that we hear, and by faith, we respond to it. We receive it. We appropriate it. Acts chapter 18, verse 11, reminds us in commentary on this passage, they, the church at Corinth, they received the gospel, and they were saved. Here's the distinction. Friend, it's, it's one thing to hear the gospel. It's another thing to respond to it. This morning, I have no doubt that many of you have grown up in the life of the church and you've heard the gospel. We've talked about those who've never heard it, but then there are those who have heard it. In fact, you can maybe repeat it back to me, but that's not the question I'm asking this morning. Have you believed it? Have you received it? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Not have you heard about him, but have you responded in faith to him and his atoning word. John chapter 1 verse 11, Jesus came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become the sons of God to those who believe in his name. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but they were born of God. Friends, have you received this message? Have you believed this message. And then notice what Paul directs our attention to as he declares this gospel to us this morning, in which you stand. He says, verse 1, which I have preached to you, which also you've received, and in which you stand. Friend, are you saved this morning? How do you know? Do you stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Do you rest in the finished work of a resurrected Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Friend, I want you to know this morning that attending a church like this one will not save you. Sharing the gospel will not save you. No religious work or religious deed can save you simply resting in the finished work of Christ, believing in what he has done for you, turning from your sins and relying upon him and him alone. That is the truth of the gospel. And every day, church, in our sanctification, we have to remind ourselves of this as well. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, But to him who does not work but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. 
here the language of this is that we continue perpetually to stand in this grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is our foundation. Are we trying to stand on the hope of the gospel or are we standing upon what we do for God? And friend, if you're standing upon anything other than the finished work of Christ, I want to announce to you this morning, you are standing upon sinking sand. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that your foundation is either built upon the rock that is the finished work of Christ or the sand of works. And in that great day of judgment, if our foundation is built upon the sand of works, our works, we will completely be dissolved. In fact, the old song says it like this, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can he say than to you? He has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Friends, I point you to Jesus. I point you to the finished work of Christ this morning. That this is our confidence. This is our standing. And this is what Paul declares to the church at Corinth. The declaration, number one, of the gospel. Number two, notice in verse two, the deliverance of the gospel. The deliverance of the gospel. Verse two says this, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Here, Paul moves on to the fact that it was by the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that they were saved. But notice the phrase there, verse 2, by which also you are saved. This could be rendered saved and being saved. Here's the idea. In our salvation, it is a trifold salvation. A justification, maybe is a word you've heard. Justification. Sanctification, glorification. Friends, when we come to faith in Christ, we are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Here's another way of saying it. In the past, we were justified. In the present, we are being sanctified. And in the future, we will be glorified. And what Paul is referencing right here is this doctrine of sanctification, by which also you are being saved. You stand upon the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul shepherds our hearts, teaches us, and points us to the fact that salvation is not merely a past reality or prayer or stick thrown in the fire, but it is a present reality. In fact, here's another way of saying it, lest that be confusing this morning. The reason I can rest in that life-changing moment when I was six years of age, very young, by the way, is because God continues to renew me day by day today. My relationship with God changed at that moment. And my relationship with sin changed in that moment. That is evidenced and realized today, Easter Sunday, April the 9th, 2023. In other words, our salvation is not a past event. Been there, done that. No, 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 friends. There's a sense where, yes, our salvation is justification. But that justification is realized in sanctification today. Growing in holiness today, growing in grace today, repentance of sin today, conviction of sin at this very moment. That is how I know that one day also, because of his resurrection power, will be fully and finally saved. That my body will match the new man that is inside the spirit, walking in newness of life. 
this Christian life, our growing in sanctification is a, there's different languages for it in the scriptures. It's a sojourning. It is a journey. It is a pilgrimage. And friends, we may not be all that we should be here this morning, but I want to encourage you in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's still working on us, isn't he? Oftentimes we can get discouraged. Sin enters our life and the life of the believer. and We don't repent. We don't confess our sins. And as long as that sin is present in our life, there's a peace that is lost. We need to return again like a child returns to his father and confess our sins and say, Search me, O God. Try me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. And that fellowship is restored. It's like the old song says, we learned in our younger years, He's still working on me. Now, friends, there's a warning here. There's a tension here in the text in verse 2. Paul gives encouragement and shepherding affirmation where he says you are being saved in the sense of growing in your sanctification, but there's a warning. There's an if. Notice verse 2. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. This is a superficial response to the gospel. This is a superficial belief that so many respond with. An initial response, we've studied this recently in our pulpit ministry, the parable of the souls, as we've looked at that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. But what, what is being described here is an apostasy, a coming face to face with the gospel, the truths of the gospel, and yet turning away from it, departing from it. Paul is giving affirmation and encouragement, but yes, a warning. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And friends, I want you to know you hold fast because he holds fast to you. In fact, Jude, verse 24 and 25, also recently preached here in our pulpit preaching ministry. It's a study through Jude. Is that closing doxology that he is able to keep us from falling. And yet, there's a real-time present responsibility that is exercised to hold fast to this precious gospel that has been given to us. Number one, the declaration of the gospel. Number two, the deliverance of the gospel, the reality on a day-by-day basis and also a future hope. And then lastly, number three, the defining of the gospel, verse three. There are many people who describe the gospel in different ways. Today, the gospel is this, the gospel is that. In fact, the word gospel or the good news of the gospel is used so much that we can lose its meaning. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have the most succinct definition of what the gospel is. So friends, I want you to know, if someone ever asks you, what is the gospel? And your mind goes blank, and you can only remember one thing, other than Jesus, the cross, the resurrection. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and here in verse 3, you'll see an articulate summary of all that Paul is describing. What is it that he delivered to the church at Corinth? What is this gospel that he is reminding them of for their salvation, for their sanctification, and their future hope in glorification? Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, notice this argument is rooted in authority. The authority of the Word of God. And, verse 4, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day. Again, authority invoked here, according to the Scriptures. Here, in this defining of the gospel, Paul points us to the vicarious work of Christ in verse 3. 
This idea of vicarious means instead of or in place of. And it's the truth that Christ died for our sins. Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He was the perfect lamb who knew no sin, who became a sacrifice for our sins. In fact, this is the hope of the gospel in that Jesus is the Son of God. He became flesh, human flesh for us. And he lived the life that I am incapable of living, and yet I have tried so hard to live so many times in the past. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it like this, you don't realize how bad you really are until you try really, really hard to be good. I can remember moments in my testimony in my teenage years and even in my adult years where I just said, you know what, I'm, going to, I'm done with that. And through self-effort and perspiration and new resolve, I'm going to try harder to do more. Friends, I want you to know that if we lived a trillion lifetimes, we could never live the propitious, perfect, righteous life that God requires in his absolute holiness. And he lovingly sent his son to live the life we're supposed to live and yet are incapable of living. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, our sins calls us to fall short of the glory of God. Now, I know you're listening to me this morning, and some of you hear this and you say, yeah, but there's good people out there, Legrand. Well, listen, the Word of God says our goodness and our righteousness is filthy rags before a holy God. So whatever it is we define as goodness and righteousness is still enough to send us to hell. Well, some could say, well, listen, I'm better than the person next to me. And you may be right. You may be better than in a sense of degrees or comparison. But it's all about what you're comparing yourself to. If I compare myself to you and you to me, and we could all find someone that's worse than we are. But that's not the point. When we compare ourselves to a holy God, we all fall short. There's a, there's a ledge here this morning. Some of us may have the ability uh, to jump from this ledge to that pew. And what an ability that would be, for sure. For some of us who are growing older, right? There may be somebody here this morning who could bridge the gap. But if you stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon or the Badlands like I have, it's a gulf so huge and so vast, it's absolutely crushing. And the thought can pass your mind, how would we ever get across? While some of us could back up far enough and run hard enough and some could get further than the next guy but all of us are going down that's what I'm trying to describe for you this morning in a very simple way compared to the gulf the holiness of God all of us fall short of the glory of God so Paul points us to the fact of Christ died in our place verse 4 this is a verified death. Notice, and that he was buried. He was buried. And he rose the third day, verse 4, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You don't bury living people. There are those who've been on their way to the, the funeral home who are not really dead. Somewhere in the process of the ambulance or waiting to go through the process, they awake out of a coma. Something happens, and those... Those stories are true. They happen rarely, but they happen from time to time. 
But I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus was dead. The scriptures say he gave up his life. He breathed his last. He uttered, it is finished. And he was buried. He was guarded by Roman soldiers. He fulfilled prophecy. And yet, as he rose again the third day, as we see in verse 4, over 500 witnesses saw, more than 500 that put them all together, saw his resurrected body and saw his ascension, again returning to the Father. Friends, this is a verified fact. And Paul points us to the reality of this resurrection. It is a victorious resurrection there in verse 4. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, if you've ever done any research or study reading about the resurrection of Christ as an attempt to try to explain it away, there's different ones called the hallucination theory. Have you ever heard the hallucination theories where all these accounts, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the disciples in the upper room, Mary, the other ladies who all saw the resurrected Jesus, the 500 who saw him ascend, they all had a hallucination that it didn't really happen. It really didn't exist. It's just a hallucination. Well, friends, if it was just a hallucination, his body would still be in the tomb. Friends, his, his body's not in the tomb. He's a resurrected Lord. And you can go to that tomb today and you will not find the body of Jesus. There's the swooning theory that Jesus temporarily fainted, that he played off the fact that, that he was dead. There's, there's just theory after theory, but Paul points us into the most solid fact that the resurrection of Christ is the most provable historical event in all of human history. What a joy that is. But regardless of those facts, it comes back to home. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Not just do you know about him. Paul is comforting the church here to shepherd the hearts of the believers here to know that because of his resurrection, we will be resurrected as well. And we experience that resurrection power in this journey of grace as we win the victory over sin. Not sinless in this life, but in our sanctification, we sin ultimately over the course of time less and less. He changes our appetites. He changes our desires. The things we once loved, we now hate. The things you never would have found us doing, like preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus, hanging out with people who are, listen, just look around this morning. What brings us together? It is Jesus. You have in this room, united in Christ, which cannot unite us any other way. Think about what people unite around and about, and they unite over fitness, sports, food, all types of hobbies and clubs and things. What brings this motley assortment of amazing people here this morning? It's Jesus Christ. But most importantly, not do you know about him, not have you heard about him. Is he your Christ? Is he your Lord? Are you resting in him and his finished work? It is in this gospel that we stand. Are you standing in this gospel, this resurrection gospel that we proclaim here this morning? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you will take this message and strengthen your church. In the same way Paul was writing to strengthen the church at Corinth, I pray that we would be strengthened in the things of the Lord this morning. Father, we need the gospel. 
not just to be introduced and reconciled into a relationship with the Holy God, but it is the very means and fuel that we grow in grace. Day after day, our hearts are prone to doubt, to wonder, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Just like Paul says, I declare to you the gospel that I once preached to you. Father, will we be reminded this morning of your amazing work in Christ? Will we rest in that? And I pray not one person here this morning would leave rejecting that, that you would open their hearts, you'd draw them by your spirit, and they would rest in the finished work of Christ alone for their salvation. Father, thank you for giving us a song. The believer always has a song. Even in our darkest nights, we will not be outsung by the birds. You, through the gospel, give us a song. It is our joy to sing and lift high the name of Jesus, even now as we close. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.